What's up gamers and welcome to Lost at Sea Gaming. I am Hulking Yoda, the captain of this ship, the SS Gamer. And you have just stepped into my captain's quarters, my weekly gaming update show where I talk about my favorite gaming news topic of the past week, discuss what games I've been playing, give tips on some of those games, as well as issue a weekly relevance gaming related decree. This week, it's all about Sony's newly announced details on the officially named PlayStation VR 2. So let's talk about it and dive right into the episode with my news catch of the week. Gamers, we've known for a while now that PlayStation VR 2 or PSVR 2 is going to be a real thing. Sony confirmed a while ago last year that it was coming. We just didn't have the official confirmation that it was, in fact, going to be called PlayStation VR 2 or PSVR 2. Well, just last week at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show of 2022, we did get that confirmation at Sony's press conference where they unveiled PlayStation VR 2 as the official name of this platform. Now, the other big thing that came out of it, they had a lot of specs they shared and the fact that those really nifty controllers that I loved, the fact that we're actually using these types of controllers as opposed to having to have those peripherals of the Move wands back on the PS4. So these new controllers, they officially named them the Sense controllers, which obviously goes perfect with the PS5, which is the exclusive platform that PlayStation VR 2 is going to be available on because, obviously, the DualSense controllers that come with that console, it just makes perfect sense. And I love the DualSense controllers for the haptic feedback, the adaptive triggers, just an amazing immersion that's been added, just added that extra layer to my gaming experience, and I love them for it. Well, guess what? Those haptic feedback and adaptive trigger features are also coming to the Sense controllers and PSVR 2, which is absolutely phenomenal because not only are you already going to be immersed from a visual sense in these games on this platform, but now you're also going to get that reaction and that sense in your hands as you're controlling yourself or these characters in these games. And it just sounds so much better every time I hear something new about PSVR 2. Now, another thing that Sony kind of touched on in a blog post as well was the new headset that comes with PSVR 2. It's going to feature an OLED, O-L-E-D display with a 2000 by 2040 per eye panel resolution. Now, that's pretty awesome, guys. I don't know how much you look into VR headsets or even the past PlayStation 4 PSVR but man, that's that's top-notch. As far as what's in the industry right now, that's top of the line. That is amazing. That means we're going to get beautiful visuals. I can't wait to see what it looks like actually on my head. But the headset is also going to support 90 hertz and 120 hertz with a field of view of approximately 110 degrees. There's going to be four cameras on this headset and a controller tracking IR camera for per eye tracking. So Sony says, quote, your movements and the direction you look at are reflected in game without the need for an external camera. Now, gamers, this is amazing. And I personally never, unfortunately, got the chance to try out PlayStation 4 VR. But I do have a friend of the show, Logan Phoenix from Graveyard Gamer. Check out his podcast right here on Anchor and many other platforms. He has told me 
having played PlayStation VR himself, that that is an absolute huge game-winning statement by saying there is no camera externally required. Because for him, it was very cumbersome having to keep that tracking with the camera in front of you because sometimes you'd have to bend down or just certain movements kind of take you out of that frame for an instant. And it can be kind of jarring to the overall experience when you're trying to be completely immersed in it. So the fact that all that's taken out of the picture here and it's taken care of internally in the headset, that is absolutely phenomenal. Now, the other big thing that came out of this announcement was not just some specs and the Sense Controller's name. It was also a brand new game that was announced and shown off very briefly, Horizon Call of the Mountain. Obviously, yes, it's set in the world of Horizon Zero Dawn and Horizon Forbidden West, one of the greatest Sony first-party exclusives available. And obviously, I think this is kind of coinciding with, hey, we got Horizon Forbidden West coming out in a few weeks, so let's kind of tout the Horizon brand and say, we also have this VR experience coming at some point in the future. Now, I will say, visually, it looked great, and I can only imagine playing Horizon and being in that world and being immersed in it in the way that at least my imagination is visualizing how this could potentially be. Exploring through the underwater areas, the Aloy, you see her in Forbidden West in these trailers going through, and just the different very dense jungles and tropical areas, and even the frozen wastelands of the DLC of the first game. There's so much there. Her bow and arrow, oh, I could go on and on and on. Point is... It's a Horizon game built for VR, and the game is being co-developed by Guerrilla Games with Fire Sprite Games. And you may not have heard of them, but ironically, Sony acquired this studio late last September. So I'm sure it was all about getting them in there. They probably are very good with game design and a virtual reality type space, guaranteed. So I can't wait to see what comes of this partnership and of this platform. Now, unfortunately, we didn't get all the goods out of this show as far as information is concerned. There was no price, no release date, but everybody's assumption, mine included, is that it will be holiday 2022, late, late this year when this platform releases. Now, I, if I was a betting man, I would say... If I'm going more specific than just holiday, typically in the gaming industry, holiday means anywhere from somewhere in November until Christmas, essentially. So if I were to bet, I would say early November. I would even say Sony, having released platforms in the past, even major consoles, at the end of October, I could see them also doing it then. But they have been known to release things in September so I wouldn't put it past them either. So I would say if it were me, purely hulking Yoda, giving a guesstimate, uh, very broad range between September and November. I don't think they're going to go into December and have not released it yet. Now, as far as price, if I were to speculate on price, I look at what we have right now with PlayStation VR and the fact that between it and or its bundles, it's anywhere from three to $400. You look at this PSVR 2, it's an upgrade to what is already there in PSVR 1. So anytime you upgrade hardware, software, technology, 
typically that upgrade comes with the price. My assumption would be an extra hundred bucks. So I am guesstimating that it's probably going to be, I'd be surprised if it was cheaper than 400. I would also be surprised if it went as expensive as 500, because that's the same price as a PlayStation 5. So you're asking people to spend a thousand bucks just to have access to VR. And look, I get it. There are some VR headsets out there that are really on the expensive side and pushing that $1,000 price tag. But I just don't know if Sony would realistically believe that they could get some kind of net profit return off of that asking price. So I'm going to rest at around 400 bucks. So I'm very excited to see what Sony does with this platform. I'm very excited to be able to jump on this platform and this journey and this experience as soon as it becomes available to me. I was very much a doubter of VR when the original PlayStation VR came out and kind of shrugged it off and didn't even give it a second glance. In hindsight, I really wish that I had given it a shot and enjoyed some of the experiences that I've recently heard are actually really fun. So now I cannot wait to try it out for myself. That'll do it for this week's Catch of the Week. Now let's open up my captain's log and see what games I've been playing. Gamers, it's been a few weeks now since I've been able to discuss with you the specifics of what games I've been playing and how much I've been enjoying those adventures and those journeys that I've been going on. And, you know, I was focused on reflecting on the year of 2021 and looking forward as a whole to the year of 2022. But now we're back. We're ready to go week to week with Captain's Quarters. And I am so excited to discuss with you three specific games that I've spent a good amount of time in over these last three weeks. Now, this first game that I want to talk to you about is one that I finally jumped on after it had already been out for a few weeks. You know, I finally finished Assassin's Creed Valhalla. If you've been listening to this show, you know it took me just over a year to fully complete everything I wanted to do in that game and move on. Well, upon doing so, I finally was able to jump into the next game on my list that was Halo Infinite. Guys, I love Halo. I've been a huge fan of this franchise since the launch of the Xbox all those 20 years ago. And I was very excited for this one because, you know, Halo 5 Guardians admittedly disappointed me. I really, really was disappointed with that game. You know, it was a decent enough story. I didn't necessarily have a problem with Spartan Lock, but I don't play Halo for the campaign to play as somebody other than Master Chief. I play a Halo campaign to play as Master Chief. So it also baffled me that 343, the developer, made the same mistake that Bungie did with Halo 2 with Halo 5 Guardians by putting Master Chief in the backseat. And you only play with him as like three missions. And the rest of the game is lock, as was the case with Halo 2, where you play mostly as the Arbiter. Well, it is what it is. Here is Halo Infinite hopefully the savior of my love of this franchise. Well, guys, I put about 14 hours into the game this past couple of weeks. And the first thing I'll tell you that stands out to me are the graphics. And you know, maybe it's for the wrong reasons, but also I do know for a fact there are some of the right reasons in there. And what I mean when I say wrong reasons, 
You know when Halo Infinite was first unveiled and visually it did not look good and man, we're still getting memes about how rough the graphics were at that time and you know, we got the delay of a whole year because of it. Well, I can tell you that that delay was well worth it because graphically the game is gorgeous. There is a level of detail within not just the character model of Master Chief, but also the enemies and their character models. I absolutely love the attention to detail that this game offers up. And you really see it, especially in the cutscenes, especially the ray tracing and the lighting effects. Oh, man. And even when you're going through the world of Zeta Halo, which is the Halo ring in the world that you'll kind of explore as you're going through this game... Man, the lighting effects between plasma grenades, explosions, the way they reflect off of everything, it's phenomenal. So overall, character models, enemy types, and even the environment of Zeta Halo are gorgeous. Now, I will say I won't say that they are the greatest graphics I've ever seen in the world. I will say that I've seen better gaming environments, but they're still pretty gorgeous as you're exploring and going through Master Chief's newest story. Now, talking about that world and the environment, let me just say that this is the first time a Halo game is kind of trying to, in my opinion, embrace, I don't want to say a hub world, but it's not yet necessarily a giant, massive open world either. But that kind of gameplay style is where they're trying to go in this game as less of a linear approach from all the other games that we're used to. And I don't know how I feel about it 100% yet. You know, 14 hours in, I'm still kind of like, uh, I don't know, man. I kind of I kind of miss the linearity of the original, all the other Halo games of point to point. And don't get me wrong, there are areas, even on that original Halo, where that first Halo ring that you're on, there is just a certain sense of open-worldness, and you feel the vastness of where you are, but you're still kind of on a direct path. There's only so many directions you can go until you're kind of still funneled back into that linear path. Well, I feel like 343 was trying to open things up, and look, I get it, and I'm all for evolving a series that's been around for 20 years now and trying to shake things up. And you know, when you go open world, you have to have some other side activities thrown in there. You can't just go from base to base and just have random firefights. You have to have some kind of other sense of purpose to fill in the openness. And that's exactly what 343 does here. And as far as the side activities they have for you on tap, I do feel there's a lot of variety there. You know, there's a lot of collectibles. I mean, a lot of collectibles in this game, guys. There are Spartan cores that you can use to upgrade your Molnir armor, which I do love that. I love the upgrade system in this game. There are also different cosmetics that you can unlock with Molnir lockers that are for use in your Spartan that you use in multiplayer, which I thought was really cool. There are also some really cool things in the form of assassinating targets. And these are like the worst of the worst of the banished who are the main big bad in this game. You know, we had the covenant and the flood in the first couple games, the first trilogy. And then we ended up with the brutes, but they weren't the overall big bad until really the halo wars two 
saga, in my opinion, which is honestly kind of is almost necessary playing if you really want to know all the ins and outs of what's going on here and the character of Atriox, who was the main antagonist of Halo Wars 2. But you don't have to know every little detail to enjoy what's going on here in the story. 343 kind of makes sure that I won't say how in the beginning of this game's story to set you up in case you haven't played Halo Wars 2. But the bottom line is, as far as the side activities, we'll get back to that. That is one of the many things you can do is go after and assassinate specific targets. You have a ton of audio logs, and I mean a ton. There are UNSC audio logs. There are banished audio logs. There's just stuff everywhere, guys. (laughs) And I mean, look, the game does a pretty good job of giving you this pulse option to where you can see interactable objects in the environment. And I appreciate that. But at the same time, I have scoured numerous areas, in my opinion at least, it feels like I scoured them, and I'm still missing some of these collectibles. So either way, outside of all the collectibles and assassinating targets, there are what they are calling FOBs, are forward operating bases that you can take over and take back from the Banished. And just to clarify, the Banished as an enemy group, they are a collective unit of covenant as well as elites and brutes they are all working together under the banner of the banished so you have any type of enemies that you can imagine from the halo universe that are all together here and say they've taken over these forward operating bases well once you take them back and essentially you just defeat all the enemies once you take back you can now call in airdrops of vehicles at this location or have weapons and grenades modified and made for you right there on tap. You also have the ability to send out this pulse on the overall map and it shows you and unlocks different icons on the map of collectibles and other areas of interest. So interesting stuff there. There's also a few other areas that are very similar to FOBs, but they're a little bit bigger and have more interior environments that you can kind of go into And those also, you pretty much just take out all the enemies. The only addition to that is you have to take out and destroy these silos, these energy silos. And once you destroy all silos and take out the enemies, you can claim that base of operations for yourself as well. So overall, I have enjoyed my time with the game. There have been ups and downs, I will not lie. There have been moments where I honestly felt kind of bored with the game. There were times where I just, I really wanted to switch over to a different game. I'm not going to lie to you guys, but I didn't. I stuck with it, and I'm glad, because specifically before this recording I was playing, and, you know, I really do want to play through and complete this campaign before moving on to Guardians of the Galaxy, and I'm glad I stuck with it, because the campaign really started to ramp up a little bit for me, and the mystery of what exactly is Zeta Halo? What's going on here that has the Banished so interested? It really started to spike for me. And, I, you know, I just got to say a couple other smaller nitpicky things that I have about this game, though, before moving on from it. I will tell you the D-pad usage in this game has taken some getting used to for me. As far as swapping between grenade types, because there are four different grenade types in this game... It's done with the D-pad, and you press a certain direction on the D-pad, and at that point, you have a very brief moment (laughs) of time to where you can press whatever other direction of the D-pad is that you're trying to designate 
the new grenade you want to switch to. So say if you have a regular grenade that is designated by the left direction on the D-pad, plasma grenades are designated by up on the D-pad, you want to switch from plasma to regular hand grenade. Well, you have to press the D-pad in the direction to bring up that option screen. And then you press really quickly whatever direction you need to to get to that hand grenade. I just think it's very cumbersome. Uh, the game also does this with the uh, abilities of your Molnir suit. It's also tied to the D-pad and switching it in that way. And look, I get it. There's only so many things that a controller can do, and you got to map it out somehow. But at the same time, like, come on, guys. I don't know. I just... A very minor thing. I've gotten used to it over my 14 hours, but it is something that stood out to me. So overall, I've been really enjoying this game and look forward to see where this mystery of Zeta Halo takes me and how this is going to add overall to the lore of Halo and to Master Chief. And very interested to see how it ends because I'm, I'm very curious what 343's plan is ultimately for Halo going forward from a campaign standpoint. So next up is a game, another one that I finally got a chance to play, and it had come out back in November. I'd wanted to jump on as soon as it came out, just didn't get a chance to, and finally last week I said, you know what, I'm doing this, and I ended up losing four hours to this game in a good way, and that is Forza Horizon 5. <laughs> Guys, I've always wanted to really get into the Horizon series, and I love that style of racing game the most. The kind of open world, not straight arcade, but also not straight simulation either. I like kind of right in the middle, and this is perfectly that. And I got to tell you, the first thing, again, that jumped out at me was how beautiful this game was. Absolutely gorgeous. I'm sure if you've seen trailers or screenshots, you know what I'm talking about. And the environment of Mexico is where this game takes place. And it's just absolutely breathtaking. I got to tell you, the controls, I have I can't speak anything negative about the controls. I think the car controls and the physics are great and excellent. Every single type of car, too. That's one thing I love about this game. The variety of cars, the variety of race types. You have off-road, you have street racing, you have ATVs and all kinds of different stuff that you can switch between. And it's awesome. The variety is just absolutely everywhere. And, you know, there's another thing that this game does that a lot of racing games have done for a while now in the open world racing game genre. And I really feel like, for me at least, it started with Test Drive Unlimited back on the 360. And that is where you buy a house, and in that house you can kind of, maybe you have some furnishings that you can do, but ultimately it's there really to have a garage to where you can house your cars and kind of a base, if you will, and you can customize your character. And I had a lot of fun doing that as well. I got to a point in the main story where you buy your first house and went through all that customization piece. And there's a lot of really cool stuff. And uh, man, this game could really just take a lot of your time away if you allowed it to. And it would all be worth it and a lot of fun, I think. I just don't have that kind of time right now trying to Beat a couple things before Horizon Forbidden West comes out in February. But I thought that it was awesome that the rewind feature, which for me, you know, I don't play a whole lot of racing games anymore, unfortunately. But for me, the rewind feature is something that has been staple ever since it first released or I became aware of it years ago in Grid. 
And man, it's implemented great in this game and has certainly saved me from a lot of complete restarts more often than not. And the photo mode, I will say real quick, is also really well done. I've thoroughly enjoyed being able to take some really cool cinematic shots in just the brief amount of time I've had with the game. And just, again, the combination of the visuals of the cars and the amazingness of the environments, it just all adds up to be a really great experience and a lot of fun. So the last game that I've been spending a lot of time with this past few weeks is, of course, The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword HD. Now, guys, I've been playing this one for a little while now as well, kind of picking away at it every night before I go to bed or most nights. And I was able to get about 10 hours total into this game since we last talked about it. And when I last left you listeners, I had just entered this hidden warehouse in the Lanairu Desert. Well, I continued to explore this facility, and there was a heavy emphasis here on those time shift stones that I talked about before, where when you strike them, it will basically branch out and there's a certain cone or circle of area that will be affected by the stone and it'll go back to the past if you will and you can do different things with the environment in the past that you can't do in the present but the things you do in the past will affect the present so on and so forth so ultimately it was just a lot of fun you use those time shift stones in order to get to your end goal of the warehouse which is restoring power to this little generator. So ultimately, I found the power generator. And it was really cool to me how you have to turn the power back on to it. If you remember, I was talking previously about these hermit crab type enemy types that were in the Lanaiwa Desert. And they'll roll after you. They'll electrocute you, whatnot. Well, when you roll back the time with the time stone, these hermit crab-like creatures in the past actually roll up and become these little electrical balls with eyes. And they can still shock and attack you and damage you in that way, but you just have to time your possession of them as you carry them and essentially have to make your way from the front of the warehouse to the back of the warehouse, uh, timing everything correctly, obviously to drop it when it's not going to shock you and then use the past and present to get to the end. It's, it's all these things working together to get to the end, to then throw it in this little area to activate with the electricity that it puts out, the generator. Well, ultimately, I find out after this, there's nothing else in the warehouse. So I go back out to the desert and I ultimately find the main giant power generator that's kind of in the center of this desert and realize that that first smaller generator was one of three in the whole desert area that you have to you know, put power back to in order to turn on the main giant generator in the middle. So thankfully, in talking to one of the LD robots that I had met earlier in the game and in this area, they basically let me know all the details about the different processes of getting these different generators back up and running. And the first, of course, was in that warehouse. And at this point, you know, there's still about half of the map that I have left to explore So I know there's plenty of options for me as to where these last two generators could be. Well, I explore, ultimately through platforming and bomb usage, trial and error. Eventually, I do find and activate all three of those power sources. Head back to the generator and activate it, and it unearths the Lanairu mining facility, which I was very excited to see 
was this area's dungeon. I thought it was another amazingly designed dungeon, guys. Absolutely loved my time exploring it. Of course, I got a new item called the Gust Bellows, and essentially, it really functions as a leaf blower, but it's used for sand in this case. And there's a few other functions for it as well that involve using wind to activate certain things, uh, is all I will say for right now, and in the interest of spoilers, but bottom line is I absolutely loved it. I thought it was great. It really kind of unearthed inside of the dungeon, at least, different areas that were covered in sand. You could blow all the sand away and find new treasures, new rupees enemies sometimes it was just really really cool so after using this gust bellows and combining it with my use of the time shift stones that were on hand and good use of my stamina gauge i will say i did make my way to the end of this dungeon to meet its boss which of course was another fun boss fight now after some story progression and some cutscenes, i was tasked with going back to the sealed grounds an area at the very beginning of the game and to speak with the elder mother who i had met there previously and again, in the interest of spoilers, I will leave out the details of some really, really good story stuff here and just say that I ended up walking away with another new item, which just so happens to be the goddess's harp. And it does have a cool feature to it. And the fact that when you strum the harp and play the song, it activates certain statues or stone walls when you're playing near them. And they'll sometimes unveil new treasure chests or, or different secrets. And ultimately, I, I, just one thing I love about Zelda is every single one of them typically somehow ends up tying in the theme of music somewhere. And it's always done really, really well. But ultimately, my quest did take me back to Skyloft. And you know, I was looking for new side quests, of course, before advancing to the next major area. And uh, in the process of doing this, I did get a few more gratitude crystals for Betro, and I've gotten up to 30 of those now. And he did reward me with an increase to my rupee wallet size, which I was very thankful for. And the other cool thing was there was a, this mysterious chest that appeared in his house that he was begging me not to open. And I'll just say that for now, I am listening to him, but man, if I don't want to see what's in that chest... Now, there were another couple of side quests that you can do at night. You can go to Pippet's house, and there's a cleaning job, is all I'll say that you can do there. And you can, if you stock up on stamina potions, which I will recommend that you do, you can help out a struggling neighbor of yours in Night Academy's dorm rooms. Now, eventually, I do get back on track with the main quest. And after I do some more cool things, and I'm, again, in the interest of spoilers, I won't say what they are. I end up back in the Faron Woods and acquire, get ready for it guys, the Water Dragon Scale, which finally allows me to explore underwater. And one thing I loved about underwater in the very brief moment of time that I got to do it uh, in this game were the way that the air bubbles that pop up, they are what extends your oxygen meter. There's just these giant air bubbles that pop up and you can swim towards them. And I don't know, for me, maybe I'm weird, but it was just the little things, guys, the little things. And I did take this underwater passage, the first one that I took after being able to swim underwater and explore. And it led me to this new area where I am currently at. And I am just loving this game. And I cannot wait to see what else that it has in store for me moving forward. So that's what I've been up to gaming-wise this past few weeks. Now, after all of that, what ended up being my highlight of the week? Gamers with all 
of that gaming behind me, trying to figure out what it was that stood out to me the most, it was kind of difficult because I was kind of bouncing back and forth between a few things. But really, to no surprise to me, it ultimately fell back in the lap of Skyward Sword. And my highlight this past week, it was a specific quest, a side quest that I did. And I'm just going to call it the Love Letter Quest. And it's back in Skyloft. And let me just highly, highly recommend that every time you end up having to go back to Skyloft, you always are checking for those dialogue bubbles above people's heads because they're always going to be indicative of new side quests for these specific characters. And this specific quest, it just hit me in a lot of different areas. It really cracked me up, but I also felt bad. It's also a quest that technically you have two different ways you could see it through to completion. And let me just say, I don't, again, want to spoil the outcome or the specifics of it for anybody. But I'll just say very loosely kind of describe what it was that I loved about it and just some of the elements of this quest or quests. And we have a character who seems to be a ghost haunting the bathroom at Knight's Academy where Link and the other students reside. And there are these terrifying moans coming from the bathroom at night. So obviously you can only investigate at night this bathroom. And uh, let's just say that the ghost or whatever it may be behind that door needs paper. We'll leave it at that for that ghost. Then let's also say that there is another student who may have a crush on another student. And they're struggling with trying to convey that to said student. Let's just say Link gets recruited to potentially help (laughs) get these two together. And the outcome, I thought... uh, Uh, Let me just say, initially, I thought I did the wrong thing. I reloaded and tried something different and was like, oh, no, I I need to go back and do it this way, the way I did it initially. It was just a lot of fun, guys. And I really thoroughly enjoyed just this randomness, honestly. But the storyline of it, how brief it may have been, the humor that was in it ultimately in the end, and the fact that it wasn't just tied to the old woman that's in the kitchen that you can talk to and she's right there next to the restroom and is aware of the moaning in the haunted restroom. But also it's made it around town to where when you're at the bazaar, you have a person talking to you about the haunted bathroom and it just, it it cracks me up. So I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. And it was definitely my highlight of the week. Now let's go open up my buried treasure gaming chest and see what tips I have for you this week. Gamers, of course, this tip is coming to you from The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword HD. It's going to be a puzzle tip, and it's not the exact solution. I will go ahead and say that. Uh, But it is something that will drastically, I think at least, save you some time. Now, I will just say this is the puzzle that is inside the storm cloud. So you'll know what I'm talking about when you get to it. There is a point where you go into a storm cloud, and ultimately, you land on a platform. And you can see this tower that you need to get to from the platform. And there's this massive gap that's between you and that tower. But you also see these pieces of stone pathway floating in the air at different locations around the platform. And you're going to need to use those to get across to the tower. 
Now, the platform that you're standing on, it has a stone structure with three rupees that are engraved into it. And there's this giant stone lever that you can push in a clockwise manner in the center of this platform. You're also going to notice that other stone structures will be sticking out of the ground, or there are spots where when you prompt them to, there will be stone structures popping out of those areas as well. Now, the rupees, when you strike them with your sword, they're going to cause a certain pair of stone structures to rise or descend from those spots in the platform. And the giant stone lever controls the movement of those floating pathway pieces and will move in a clockwise direction when you push the lever. Now, I'm not going to tell you again the exact movements and timings of everything because that's just going to take some trial and error on your guys' part. But to shave off some time for you, my tip is making sure that you're aware of how everything here works together to get you to your solution. So the stone structures that stick out of the ground, you got to use those as a means of stopping those floating islands in place. Because those floating islands, they actually are represented on this platform as other pieces of stone. And when you move the lever, it moves those pieces of stone as well. So you got to line up and time everything correctly to be able to stop the pieces that represent the floating pathway stones in order to get them all together and ultimately bring them as a bridge to cover your gap between the platform and the tower. So you're going to have to go back and forth with rupee strikes to find the exact timing and the placement of the stops. But once you realize how everything works together and the representations of everything, it really, it didn't take me too long to get to the solution. So I feel confident the same will be for you listeners as well. So hopefully that'll save you some time when you do get to that puzzle. Now let's go check out this week's Captain's Decree. Gamers, in the interest of PlayStation VR 2 and the excitement I have around its confirmation of title and the Sense controllers this week, my captain's decree is this. What game experience will make VR really take off with gamers? And also, what game do I want the most from this platform? So first up, what is that experience that is just really going to make VR take off with gamers? Well, in my opinion, I feel that it has to be a full AAA experience, a full game, not a three to five hour, you know, kind of a quickie experience where you just kind of running through a tech demo in a sense. Gamers, we want substance. And I feel like to have this really take off, you're going to have to add depth to it. And look, it doesn't have to be a hundred hour epic, but I would say that if you're looking at 15 to 20 hours in length, with the same kind of TLC that you typically get in a game of that style, I think that you'll be good, Sony. I really do think this will be something really special and have the potential to really take off and kind of set the tone for the industry when it comes to how do we look at VR? Is it something viable that people, that the mass gaming audience is going to take to? Now, what is the game that I want most out of PlayStation VR 2? Guys, for me... It was almost immediate, an uncharted VR game. Now imagine what it would be like to have that sense of scale of being in this massive jungle environment and look around you and you hear the sounds and man, if they only had a, a sense feature where you could smell things, but I, I don't know if that's going a little bit too far, but 
Imagine being immersed in this jungle environment and just hearing and seeing all these things around you as you move through as Nathan Drake or what it would feel like if you're at the top of a mountain and you look down and you have that sense of vertigo almost and right before there's a sequence of jumps and as you're taking those jumps or the sequence of shimmying across a ledge or, or scaling the side of a cliff or whatever it may be, all these different kinds of actions would be absolutely phenomenal, I think, in VR. And when it comes to Uncharted, you have two different types of combat. You have close quarters combat, hand-to-hand, and you have gunplay. So imagine, I think that it would be extremely immersive and in your face if you were doing the close quarters combat, gunplay, whatever it may be. I think that that would be awesome from a VR perspective. My final piece that I got really excited about here when it comes to Uncharted specifically is imagine how awesome it would be to be exploring a dark booby trap tomb from that VR perspective. Oh man, I, I got to tell you, it would be probably a little terrifying and, and, and freak me out a little bit because if it's actually me feeling like I'm in this dark tomb that is booby trapped and I got to watch every step and I'm going to feel everything. Oh man. But I still think it would be cool and just a really fun experience. So Uncharted VR, I think, would be absolutely amazing. And ultimately, I'm just really stoked for PlayStation VR 2 and just so excited that it's not using move wands or anything like that and that it's as close to a traditional control style as possible. So I can't wait to get my hands on those Sense controllers. That'll do it for this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed your time aboard the SS Gamer. You can join its crew by searching for Hulking Yoda on the Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo Switch networks. Reach out to me via email at lostatseagaming365 at gmail.com, as well as find me on social media on Instagram at lostatseagaming and on Twitter at lostatseagamin, the number one. Thank you for listening, and until the sea says otherwise, we'll keep sailing.